here we are back after some technical difficulty, but we are back now on the Shopping Hazard podcast, and we are joined today by Sean Douglas Lee, who, again, we're going to be talking about his book that he's actually come out with, which is actually, and I had it here, and I was ready to read it off the screen, and I totally closed my screen, (laughs) and Austerious, the Autistic Jiu-Jitsu, The Life of a Fighter, Volume 1, so tell us about the book. Obviously, this is something you just released. You're very excited to release it. We got talking yeah. about it. So tell us what the book's about. What was the inspiration behind it? Yeah, I'll leave the floor to you, my friend. Okay. Uh, thank you for having me on. And thanks for helping me promote it. Absolutely. Um, so I had a very unconventional life and upbringing. And primarily that is because the the nature of the poverty and the issues my family faced were so extreme that a lot about our family wasn't known. So I was born thinking that I was a neurotypical, um, that I'm uh, an average kind of Canadian guy. And um, I got into martial arts primarily because uh, as I grew up, there was a brewing sort of biker conflict between Hell's Angels and a number of other clubs. And if anyone knows anything about it, they're familiar with this issue. The Angels kind of took hold of every other club and forced them to join with the Angels in a massive sort of grouping or kind of separate or be destroyed was the sort of angle. And I came into working in nightclubs just as that was sort of uh, coming to the head. And I started studying martial arts. Originally, I studied boxing. And from there, I traveled across the globe, going to different places, studying different martial arts, eventually landing on Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. And so when COVID hit, I kind of looked back and I was reflecting on all the things that I've learned about my family, my life, my history, and decided, you know, I really ought to write a story about this. And there was a few key points that really drove me to it. The first thing was that martial arts goes through a rapid sort of progressive change. All martial arts do this. And I had seen it happen in other arts and we've seen it happen historically. And it is currently happening within Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, but just like many of the martial arts that gained popularity before it, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and the people concerned don't seem to be showing an awareness of this problem sort of coming to a head. And essentially in the previous martial arts where this has occurred, it kind of led to the overall destruction of those martial arts and and to a point where they are now no longer uh, really reflective of what they were at their beginning. And I'm speaking of like karate and kung fu and judo and taekwondo and even boxing at the professional level. And all of these things have gone through a process. So I started really researching valid avenues of history from PhD historians and from coaches I've spoken to in person. So I collected a lot of those oral histories and those written histories from the experts and sort of got something of a a path or a trajectory that I saw sort of culminating in BJJ. So I kind of spun it all together and each chapter of the book is a martial art I studied, the martial arts master who taught me at the time and then what was happening in my life while I learned that art. And as I successively learned more arts, I applied them to each other into my career and i eventually got to a point where i was uh, managing a very big security company and i was handling about 
I think seven or nine nightclubs. And then I got into personal protection and asset protection for levy and diamonds and these types of things and did loss prevention. I had a very lucrative career, which unfortunately uh, led to me developing post-traumatic stress disorder, complex, complicated post-traumatic stress disorder, which I then went through therapy for. And when COVID hit, I went, you know, I've got a lot of information here. And I started kind of looking through it and discovered that ultimately the core of all martial arts instruction keeps coming back to this one sort of grounding point that ironically and tragically a lot of martial artists miss. And that is many of the martial arts, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu included, have at their foundation these, these practices that are really clearly meant to prepare a person for facing post-traumatic stress or something like it, for facing the trauma of seeing serious violence. And unfortunately, until you have that, it's hard to see that those lessons are directed at it. And that, for that reason, in many martial arts sequentially, those things get kind of cut away as, as seen as unnecessary, seen as non-popular, seen as, as not part of the future of the quote sport of that martial art. And it, it creates this cycle, keeps on sort of you know running itself over. And so I, I really thought I, I could apply my history and my knowledge and my travel into an entertaining story that everybody would sort of gain something from. And so it touches on autism because I'm uh, Asperger's autistic and so is my entire family. I didn't know that when I was born. It touches on uh, a very specific uh, racially motivated history of genocide within Ontario that most people aren't aware of that affected my family. I didn't know that we had descended from slaves that escaped Virginia when I was born. It touches on the martial arts ethos and the different martial arts that I've studied leading up to BJJ um, and how those lessons really tie into post-traumatic stress disorder. And a number of other subjects that fall in there, like the nature of criminal activity and alcohol and gambling commission stuff, and just a whole bunch of anecdotal amazing things. And I traveled and studied um, in China. I, I learned Jin Fa, which is a type of what you call soft form Kung Fu that is very similar to Jiu Jitsu when I was there. And when I got home from China, um, I had the extreme fortune of falling in and training with Gary Goodrich, the MMA legend at his house. And as part of the book, I actually had to speak at length with his sister, Susie, who's been a friend of mine for some time, many years, to make sure that I wouldn't misrepresent Gary and say anything on his behalf that wasn't how he genuinely felt. Mm -hmm. um, and then I had the privilege of training under, you know, more masters moving forward, like uh, Rambo and Champ in Judo, and then eventually fell in with Marco Costa, who, who I earned my black belt under. So it's actually three volumes. Um, one, two, and three are available on Amazon. And I broke it up three volumes because it's a huge piece. There's a lot of history, a lot of discussion to martial arts and theory in it. So the total sum is over 1,100 pages. And that can't be put into a single volume. So I put it into three. Yeah. So like breaking it up, obviously, kind of, well, it helps the reader, but it also kind of helps you think about your thought process. So where yeah. did you you know, come up with the name of the, the title, like it's a Latin oh, yeah. word. So where did that come from? Where did that originate from? So, um, Austerius is actually, uh, the, one of the first words to describe a person protecting or, or, or denying entry. It's a doorman, basically mm -hmm. a door person. And there's actually a fascinating history of it. 
goes way far back. So particularly, it's, it's, it could be essentially said to be the second oldest profession in history because colloquially, we say that the first or the oldest profession in history is prostitution. And doormen were originally hired to protect brothels and ensure payment within the brothels. But they were not the people handling the women. Those were patrician, which is highborn Roman household owners who handled the women. Mm-hmm. The doormen were kind of slaves and and plebeian families who who contributed and worked to protect the brothel. And from there, uh, I cover this length in the book in one of the chapters. From there, um, we see a shift in history as as Christendom begins to descend on Rome. Constantinople becomes this capital of Christendom, which eventually leads to the birth of the Roman Catholic Church of Rome. And then doormen are suddenly taken and applied to collection and protection of tithe and money toward the church. And they stayed in that position largely, among others, sort of always riding a legally gray line until prohibition of alcohol really hit before. And then you see them used in nightclubs and speakeasies to protect alcohol and the profits derived from it. And then most recently, um, I was... Uh, significantly involved in the marijuana prohibition, cannabis prohibition. Um, I was hired to protect the sums of money that were being earned during prohibition in order to pay for the efforts to fight legislation, to turn over legislation so that cannabis would become legal. And still to this day, currently provide protection for collective of independent sex workers who can't access protection and safety services because there are police officers within vice agencies who work closely with sex workers because sex work is illegal trade in Canada. People don't know this. Um, and they work closely with those workers to try to ensure that those workers have access to the facilities and services they need to uh, work independently without fear of being trafficked. But a lot of those police and, and air various agencies attached have a huge stigma regarding sex workers as something that's sort of like untouchable. And so sex workers are constantly at ends trying to find people who are reliable and qualified and skilled enough that can uh, offer them protection and offer them, you know, driving and shuttling services and different things. A lot of times you see um, the people hired for protection end up trying to hit on the sex workers and stuff. And it's kind of like, you know, if you were a janitor and you spent the whole day cleaning, you don't want to come home, clean your house. Mm-hmm. So sex workers want someone who's professional and treats them professionally and provides a service in exchange for money. I've been closely providing services um, for an escort, um, uh, what's the word, antagonist, a woman who believes firmly in independent workers for about 10 years off and on. Um, She was one of Stephen Harper's liaisons for sex work laws when he had to rewrite after the um, Supreme Court here uh, determined that it was um, unconstitutional against the charter, the current laws that were in place. And the issue with that is <clears throat> sex work is legal, um, but er, using the money from sex work for anything is considered illegal because it could be potentially a body trafficking issue. Mm-hmm. And so the laws were written in such a manner around it that you could do the sex work and you wouldn't go to jail, but if you use the money to get a haircut at a barber shop, then the barber could be subject to being labeled as a pimp and charged under body trafficking. 
hmm. stuff like that. So Harper had to rewrite all those. And I've taken part as um, an ally and an aiding person in that process as well. And that's the last chapter of the book. I discussed that current state of affairs. Yeah. Okay. So when you were kind of like, I want to kind of go into the asset protection just for a second. So like, sure. was this something kind of like that manifested from, again, you said you were starting originally with like bouncing and obviously working at certain clubs, but then it kind of morphed into, okay, owning a company and then going into personal protection. Yeah, I didn't own the company. It was a very close friend who I actually trained with in M mixed martial arts. He, he fought amateur, took a few amateur titles out in Michigan. Um, and he hired me on as a manager to manage the nightclub side and to train the guards. And the issue at that time and the issue still today plaguing much of that industry is that the bottom fell through the security industry, so to speak. Wages just crumbled. Mm -hmm. And so anybody who was qualified didn't want to stay and do the work because it wasn't worth it. There just wasn't any money in it. Yeah. And so there was a few niche areas where companies were willing to pay. Um, decent money for protection of certain things if the guards were trained, intelligent, thoughtful, and understood the law. Mm -hmm. So we got into it mainly because I came up and earned a reputation for being competent, gifted, um, and skilled in the trade. And the OPP uh, specifically had this particular issue at a, at a club in Alliston, Ontario, of all places that was central to a lot of the biker conflicts that were going on at the time. And I was actually working that club as a young kid and being 18 years old and not knowing I was autistic, I had absolutely no clue the danger I was in. I had absolutely no clue what was happening around me. I just went in and if there was a fight, I threw people out. And a lot of the people I threw out were guys fresh out of parole on manslaughter charges and so i just i just did my job just and went doing home the job not thinking twice yeah, about it not thinking <laughs> twice <laughs> and then the opp raided the club shut it down and afterwards i remember certain officers questioning me like you must know what was happening in the club and i was genuinely like no i dude i just came and got and i got i got paid really good money i was making 250 a weekend you know at 18 mm -hmm. years old and so that sort of created this word of mouth effect where then I got contacted by another company and said, Hey, we've got work down here at Dixon and Kipling. Um, the RCMP were running a JAT investigation. They were using a sting operation out of some of the condos there because JAT's a really nasty drug and it comes in from the Horn of Africa. And luckily it's uh, it's basically a root, uh, a leaf that you chew and it hasn't expired. It's very quick. So mm -hmm. if you can stop it before it's sold within, I think, a 12 or 16-hour period, don't quote me on that, but there's a certain amount of time if you stop okay. it before it's sold, it's no longer effective. And so they needed really competent security um, on the ground to prevent any of the local people involved from, from getting tipped off that the RCMP were present. So if the RCMP had someone they needed brought in or the police had someone they needed brought in, we would just be told subtly by Toronto police, like, oh, hey, pick this guy up if you see him for trespassing, et cetera. And then they would transfer him from there. And that's kind of how they managed the situation. And then that led to, you know, further um, praise for my, my ability and competence, which eventually led to contracts through law firms for protection and then levy and asset protection stuff contacted my former employer and, and hired us for that. And those jobs are interesting because the, the diamonds are insured 
So they're, they're not really worried about protecting those. If they wanted mm-hmm. those protected, they put them in an armored car. We were hired to uh, work sort of um, undercover and follow the person who was moving the diamond sets, a representative for the company. And our job was if, if someone descended upon that individual who was carrying the diamond set, and those sets would be you know, $10 million street value, but insurance-wise, not that much. Um, we were supposed to go in and at all costs protect and save and remove that person from danger and leave the diamonds and walk with the, walk away from those. Hmm. And those jobs are really interesting. It was like a lot of ferrying of pick the rep up at a store, say in Barrie, Ontario, and then drive the rep from that store in Barrie, Ontario to Ottawa, two or three cars um, that look like normal cars following that rep in different lanes, leaving the rep at a, at a safe distance, not very far. And then if something happened, we would descend upon him quickly and get him out of there. So that was how, how old were you when you were doing this part? I would have been at that time, um, 28, 29. Okay. 28 years old. Yeah. Right, yeah. So, so it took like 10 years between when I started working in, in, you know, nightclubs and stuff to a point mm-hmm. where I was doing like asset protection things. And then now kind of like, you're not so much in asset, well, you do, you do some asset protection still, or more like counseling and advising. No, more just yeah i just do a lot more advising and i'll I'll mainly do protection regarded through regarding domestic assault or abuse um through law firms and i'll do protection for sex mm-hmm. workers as an ally um and in those jobs uh protect like personal protection is very odd because a lot of a lot of the people who need protection are not people who deserve to be protected they yeah. have a lot of enemies <laughs> Uh, so, you know, I, I can remember a friend of mine when Gaddafi was still alive, uh, Muammar Gaddafi came into to Toronto. Oh man, this is going some, back now. Yeah. Yeah. Some, something to do with, um, d- diplomatic talks and a friend of mine got a call short notice, uh, a gentleman named Brian, I won't give his last name. They said, we got a, we got a short notice job. You got to be there in two hours. You're going to be there for 12 to 14 hours. Um, we can't tell you who it is for, for reasons of safety. So he gave me a call. He said, yeah, I'm supposed to go in. And do you think I should take it? And I went, you know, it's dicey. If they can't tell you who it is, he's probably a really bad person. But if you need the money, you know, he's <laughs> smart about it. And he went, he worked, and he got back. He went, it was Gaddafi. And he was like, I was so torn because I'm hired to protect the guy, but I'm sitting in the room. Like I'd be doing a service to the world if I just killed him. <laughs> yeah, this exactly. Thing, right? <laughs> yeah. So it, when it gets to protection stuff, I take, primarily domestic assault because um i find that the victims in those cases are more often than not genuinely are more deserving of Mm -hmm. care and the protection depending upon which party you get of course yeah obviously um but i i try to stay away from unknowns of extreme wealth and that sort of stuff and and i take because i've recovered from ptsd i take jobs that i feel i can I can manage emotionally, physically, psychologically, as opposed to the real tough stuff I used to do when I was young, you know? Mm -hmm. So So obviously like talking about your PTSD, like through martial arts, is that one of the things that you've used to obviously, and obviously people will find this out in the book when they read more in depth on it, but things that you've used to, again, channel it, obviously to cope with those certain things that you're dealing with. Yeah, hugely. And in fact, um, so PTSD is very complicated for a number of reasons, and it's more complicated here in Toronto, Ontario, and I probably, I assume, all of Canada. So 
<clears throat> the big problem is that there is an active and constant effort to undermine and avoid acknowledgement of PTSD, uh, fiscal support remuneration for people suffering from it and treatment of people with it. Mm -hmm. And the reason is fiscal. The issue is simple. If you get into the policing field or if you get into the soldiering field or if you get into the paramedic field or the medical field, a lot of fields, and, and even if you just had a bad childhood, you're gonna you're you're going to have it. But if you get into those fields I mentioned and a few others, you will get PTSD. It's just not a question of if, mm -hmm. it's a question of when. And to kind of give you an example of that, you know, uh, I made 14 arrests on average at nightclubs. And in many of those situations, those people being arrested were arrested because they came back onto the property three to four times and were trying to hurt themselves or others. And we needed to restrain them for their safety and hand them over to medical or legal services. So on an average Friday night, I would fight with the potential risk to my life 12 to 14 times. Mm -hmm. Your average police officer will go out on Tuesday at 10 a.m. and respond to a call where there's a car accident and an infant has been dragged under a vehicle. Like the average first call of an eight to 12 to, you know, however long shift was enough to damage a human being for life. So it's not a question of if, it's a question of when. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's where the fiscal issue comes in. If if every police officer, every soldier, every doctor, every paramedic who had PTSD had to be given compensation or disability while being treated and their employers, including the government, had to pay for that treatment, you'd be looking at bankrupting the system. But no one wants to discuss this reality that there's just no money for that. And so what ends up happening is there is an active and constant effort to undermine and avoid ever even acknowledging it, much less diagnosing it. And this goes f as far back as in World War One, for example. In World War One, oh, yeah. uh, doctors were not allowed to, to diagnose, and this was a military order. This isn't Wikipedia with this up. It's a military order put out by a host of nations, Britain, Germany, you name it, America included, where they were not allowed to diagnose a soldier with, at that time, which what you would call shell shock. The name, the word was actually made illegal in within military use, so they would have to define them as nervous undesignated or something similar. And many of those soldiers, when they won World War One, uh, they were promised a, a, a bonus of something like an extra dollar on their pay or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, and during the Great Depression, a host of those veterans of World War One went to Washington Plaza to demand the wages they'd been promised because they were in dire need of those wages. And many of them suffering from PTSD and stubborn and feeling betrayed dug in Washington Plaza and the, the, the later on to be general, but at the time, not a general Patton was ordered by the president to ride them down at Calvary point, killed all of them in Washington Plaza. So there's this active effort to suppress it that goes into present day. And with PTSD diagnoses, it, it, it even hurts the person to get the diagnosis. And if you're a police officer or fireman, paramedic, and you've got bills to pay, and you've got a kid who's sick, or you've got something going on, 
and then you get a PTSD diagnosis, you're going to be taken off active duty. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't, that's going to affect your hours. That's going to affect your pay scale. So even at the personal level, there's, there, there's incentive for people to avoid diagnoses. And then more recently, um, because of this constant aversion of diagnosis and understanding that's really fiscally motivated, a lot of effort was not put into studying it in the ways that we should have until a doctor named Bessel van der Kolk, who is an expert in trauma at the Boston Trauma Center, uh, managed to put a team of doctors together to perform the first MRI and fMRI brain scans on a person's brain while they were having a flashback. And that really helped us to understand what is physically happening in the brain. And what was learned essentially is that PTSD is a type of brain damage. And this can happen from impact, emotional shock, or a varied variety of other you know, states. But essentially, the brain gets damaged in a way where the amygdala hippocampus loop no longer functions. And the hemispheres have trouble connecting and communicating with each other. And so when a person reads danger with their uh, amygdala hippocampus, one, one, the amygdala and the other, the hippocampus work together. One says, oh, is that danger? And the other confirms the danger. So when you hear a loud noise, what is that? Your amygdala is going, is that a danger? And the hippocampus looks at it and goes, oh, no, that's not. It's okay. It sort of you know, res- resumes normal mm-hmm. function. But with PTSD, there's a defect in that loop. And so you could be in a quiet room and suddenly you're feeling like literally jacked up and ready to fight. You're ready for because your body's erroneously reading danger. And when that happens, it triggers all the systems in your body associated with danger, adrenaline release, cortisol release, et cetera, et cetera. And it's, it, it causes physiological mechanisms in the body to fire up and do things. And, and really at its core, what we're seeing is that you get an adrenaline dump when you get your fight, flight, or freeze response. Now, that's not supposed to be a common occurrence. In a healthy society... A person might get shocked to the point of fear of death once every year. Like how often have you been driving your car and went, oh, geez, it almost hit something. Mm-hmm. And they go, Ooh, like how often does that occur? Well, if use my example of myself, if I'm fighting 14 times a day for three to four days a week, my body's not supposed to be in the adrenal response with that kind of frequency. So it looks a lot like it could just be burnout of that system. It could just be singular emotional events are so severe, they fry that system. But whatever the case might be, we know that it causes damage. And what Vanderkoek was able to flush out was that medications just don't work. What they will do, the medications, is they will seize the, the system from operating. And so the person has this lessening of the severity of the symptoms they feel but they actually are not able to progressively heal because the system's basically shut down. And the problem is the system has to be corrected through, through practice. So when you get to martial arts, Vanderkoek actually realized through the brain scans he did, which is all covered in a book called uh, The Body Keeps the Score. Phenomenal work and any person at risk of PTSD or with it, PTSD needs to read that fundamentally. But what he realized was that because of the way the brain responds, uh, especially during uh, triggering events that cause fight, flight, or freeze response, a person is not able to engage in speech therapy because the Broca's region of their brain, which controls speech and linguistics, it shuts down. 
So we're having people with PTSD go into therapy and talk about the thing that caused them that major trauma, at which point they either go into fight, flight, or freeze because they're basically reliving the event by memory. And then the brokers region shut down and they have lapses in consciousness and can't actually make any progress with therapy. So what he realized was rather than talking about it and trying to elicit memory recall, it's actually better to get the person to do a physical task that is familiar and engaging enough to keep them engrossed. And one of the perfect things for that happens to be martial arts. So he actually talks about how he prescribes kickboxing pad work hmm. or types of wrestling to PTSD patients if they're capable. And if they're not capable, he has specially trained massage therapists who teach people how to feel and touch and feel their body and feel their emotions again. And that's step one of the most, it's the most crucial step to recovery of PTSD. So in, in reality, if you're trying to recover from PTSD without significant use of medications that are preventing progress, the, the, the most crucial step is yoga, martial arts. Yoga is an offshoot of martial arts. Mm -hmm. And if you can't accomplish that, there's professionally trained massage therapists. And there's even actually uh, theater groups that are trained in trauma treatment and response because the acting of a character helps the person centralize within themselves. And that's step one. So I luckily had been in martial arts since I was 18. And so by the time I got my diagnosis, which was about 29 years old, um, I was already familiar with the grind of it. But the diagnosis was tricky because they diagnosed me at um, Humber River Regional Hospital. And I had the extreme fortune of going into the hospital on the singular night that a doctor who'd just come back from serving as a medical doctor in the war in Iraq had come home. And oh, interesting. Doing, yeah. And he was doing an actual overnight. And I went in and I, I said to him, you know, I, I feel like dog shit. My heart's just pounding. I don't know why, how I could have a heart condition at that time. I, mm -hmm. I had actually fought professionally in XFC in South Africa recently. And he said, you know, okay, let's do some work. Did the work anyway. Okay. It's not your heart, but uh, he said, do you fight? And I said, yeah. And he said, how many times you fought? And no one had ever asked me that question. So I thought about it for a few minutes and I, I figured, well, I've got two, 300 arrests chalked up with TPS that I know of. I've got a hundred with Alton. I've got this many with OPP. If for every one arrest I made, I had four conservatively, four fights or conflicts where I didn't arrest a person, which is mm -hmm. probably reasonable. I, I've probably been in 3000 or more altercations in my you know career since the age of 18. And he went, yeah, you've got PTSD and it's <laughs> going to get worse before it gets better. And I need you to come back here to the mental ward and assess, have yourself assessed with a professional because you're trained, you have hand to hand acumen. You, you could be a threat to the public. You know, mm -hmm. you don't want to hurt someone you care about. So he made me promise and I did, and I went back and Humber river regional mental ward, they had me sit with the doctor who uh, he told me that he was the head of the ward i'm not sure but the head of the ward sat with me and he said okay uh i i'm definitely confirming your diagnosis you have complex complicated ptsd which is a fancy way of saying that so many 
you were almost killed so many times that there's times you were almost killed that you forget about. Mm -hmm. Your body's just been through so much stress. So much stress. And then he said, so here's the thing. There are no doctors employed within the OHIP system who are qualified to treat PTSD. So Hmm. the best I can do for you is make an appointment with the doctor here who treats anxiety and I can leave you with this book on anxiety. Oh, and I can give you a prescription for, I can't remember, Valium, Diazepam, whatever. Mm-hmm. And I went, whoa, doc, I've never drank alcohol in my life. At that point, I've never done any drugs. I hadn't even used cannabis. I said, is it a good idea to put me on something so strong right away? And he went, you're not going to be able to sleep without it. But if you want, you can look it up. Here's some pamphlets you can read. And if you, you know, maybe you'll decide to take it when you come back. I looked it up and the first three side effects of the medication were erectile dysfunction, um, inability to be intimate, and uh, increase of depression with suicidal attempts. Being oh, it's like a no, no, no. Yeah. And I went, no, that's not. And I went back and saw the anxiety doctor. And I, you know, I didn't know anything about it at the time. I said, so is anxiety similar to PTSD? He went, well, people with PTSD have anxiety. And I went, but is it the same? No. And yeah, I went, it's well, completely hang on. different. I went, if no one's qualified to treat PTSD, why are you all trying to give me a prescription? And he went, well, that's just just what we give to people with PTSD. And I went, but that doesn't make any sense because there's no doctors employed in OHIP to do it. And he went, yeah, but I give you this book on anxiety. And I went, uh, thanks. And that's it. And if I, I said, is there anything else we can do? He said, well, OHIP will cover you for about 15 sessions total. And after that, you're on your own. Mm-hmm. And that's it. That's That's what you get. And even to this day, when I was doing the research for the book, I called CAMH, which is considered Ontario's sort of premier mental health facility. And I asked them if they had any materials in their library on neuroplasticity, because we now know that the brain is not a fixed object, that it's a plastic, meaning that, that you can change and alter your brains and its structures and chemistry. It's malleable. So if there's damage, say, to the Broca's region, you lose speech, but there are ways to rebuild that where the damage is still there, but your brain will rewrite the speech patterns in the Broca's region on another part of your brain to facilitate speech. And we see this because of the work of a doctor named Taub, T-A-U-B, who's responsible for our now uh, programs of stroke rehabilitation. And it's vital to understand neuroplasticity, SNAP plasticity, if you're going to treat a condition like PTSD. Absolutely. And I called KMH and said, do you have any materials on it? And they said, no, we still operate on the brain as a fixed model. And I went, are you kidding me? It, neuroplasticity was, was, was established as consensus like in 2008. Mm-hmm. And they were like, yeah, no, we, it's, we still operate as a fixed model. So the, so the premium mental health facility of Ontario is is – at least 15 years behind the map on PTSD and there are no doctors to treat it. And I was very fortunate because I am an Asperger's autistic, which I didn't know at the time, but um, a couple of the common things you see with Asperger's autistics is we have a very high level IQ. It's gifted. We can be very relentless and hyper obsessed on certain subjects. And that is, I got hyper obsessed on the subject. So I just scoured for information eventually coming on, Van, on onto Vandercook's material and other works on neuroplasticity and the doctor doc, Tob and, you know, and <clears throat> put together through, through the body keeps the score, the pathway that a person needs to follow to heal themselves. So I, I was at the time experiencing flashbacks, um, 
hallucinations, auditory and visual, um, forgetfulness, um, questionable images that, that were not real. I, I, I was having phantom pain from the PTSD. So phantom pain is muscles in your body will just viciously cramp. Mm -hmm. you, you don't even know they're cramping. So you just experience this wicked pain. Um, bowels, my, my, my bowels were gotten flamed at one point. Um, I know a person whose gallbladder was constricted by the, by the trauma, their PTSD. I once saw a woman in the PTSD, um, who is suffering PTSD in the groups. I knew she, she had a major panic attack and she hyperventilated so severely she gave herself CO2 poisoning. So she Jesus. temporarily lost vision and her, her fingers went in different directions. She lost the use of her, her digits. Hmm. And I, I thought, I, even I thought she was dying and I got to the hospital. I'll never forget this at the hospital. I went, she can't see and she's, you know, and she's having a panic attack and the nurse was just like, annoyed, like, okay. And I was like, do you, do you see this like a lot? And she was like all the time. And I was like, it, why isn't there any dot? Like, I just, how, why are we not treating this anyway? So, um, I had really bad insomnia when I, when it first came on, like brutal, I wasn't sleeping. I was just laying down and having flashbacks and then just mm -hmm. waking up terrified. And, um, my, my wife, uh, who married me, I was so fortunate that she married me, even though I got this diagnosis, um, suggested, well, why don't you try cannabis to just to sleep? And I was like, I've never done anything in my life. I was very proud mm -hmm. of, of not having used substances just to just try it to sleep. So I looked into it. Okay. You, you can eat it. And that's not bad for your lungs, or you can maybe vaporize the herb, which is less bad on your lungs and make mm -hmm. a mistake. Cannabis causes emphysema. A lot of the data is out. It, it does if you use it chronically. So it's to be used sparingly, you know. So I ate a half of a, of a quarter gram cookie, I think, or something first time. And this was when prohibition had just sort of opened up. And I ate all the cheese in my fridge on my living room floor uh, uh, while watching Pacific Rim, one of my favorite movies. And then I passed out and I woke up and I turned to my wife and I went, I haven't slept in like a decade. I didn't even realize it till I actually had slept. I slept eight hours that night and woke mm -hmm. up and felt like a whole new person. So I use, I was very adamant not to abuse cannabis. And this is a problem with cannabis, with PTSD treatment is people experience relief mm -hmm. and then maybe even like me, correction of insomnia. And then they just smoke it all day trying to manage the symptoms. You can't yeah. do that. You, ha you have to live out the discomfort through the day while actively working on training the neural, neural, plasticity and driving neuroplasticity synaptic plasticity correction with the help of a therapist with the help of support systems and these are all private private institutions you have to pay for so a lot of people can't access that unless they have the money to do so i did which was lucky um and then use cannabis only at night only before bed only the one time just to get to sleep and that was my first big breakthrough when you get sleep after a severe mental health trauma and you start sleeping normally again, your body just suddenly rapidly accelerates that mm -hmm. healing process. Your brain starts to recover. So the flashbacks started to get less severe, less frequent. The panic attacks became less frequent, but were still present. And then I got enough of a sense of mind and reality to start really digging into the material and the, the major component to understanding the trauma is something called alexithmia. It's a major symptom of post-traumatic stress and a lot of mental health problems. And basically what it means is um, <clears throat> if you're in a situation where 
you are terrified you're going to die. Let's say you're in a burning car. You have to get out of that car or you're going to die. Your brain, your body has three options of response. It's fight, flight, run away, or freeze. This is, we're screwed. Mm -hmm. That's it. We know from MRI scans that when the body chooses freeze, it actually activates receptors that, that put you into a dream state. So you're literally just sit there like I'm in a field of flowers and be super happy while your body burns and you die. And that's just think of it as your body's sort of merciful way of letting itself go because it can't get out of the car. Mm -hmm. The flight response is to run, but if you can't run, you're trapped, you might slip into freeze. So the fight response has to kick in, which is break the car window by any means necessary. But if you're frozen or you're frightened and then leading to frozen, you're not going to do that. So what will happen essentially is your brain will just go, you know, the problem here is emotions. The problem is you're afraid and it'll just turn that off. You just go, no more fear. And then you go right into fight mode and you'll get out of that car. You'll beat that opponent. You'll do that thing you need to do. The problem is once you turn that off, you can't just turn it back on again. It's, it's permanently off at that point. Mm -hmm. And that person is then left experiencing essentially only anger or happiness intermittently and, and nothing really else or in between. And that extends to the body because we know from these same studies we've done now for the last 15, 20 years that there's a connection between the frontal lobe, the brain stem, and the vagus nerve connecting to the guts. And we know these are now, we have three thinking centers of the human human being, not just the one. And essentially when you shut off that emotional receptive feed, you lose a lot of the sensation through the vagus nerve connection. So you actually stop being able to feel emotions in your body and you stop being able to feel certain sensations in your body. Hmm. And during my counseling for PTSD, I actually ended up being diagnosed as autistic. And to add to the complication of my own case, it turns out that I am tactilely hyposensitive. So my sensitive touch is not that great. And autistics, especially hyposensitives, have a lot of trouble with interoception, with feeling their own inside of their body. And so I had that and complication with alexithmia. But when I learned about alexithmia, I turned to my wife. I was reading in bed when I learned about it. I went, what the? F and I turned to my wife and went, do you feel fear in your body? She went, yeah. But do you feel, do you feel anger and guilt in your body? And she went, yeah. And I went, well, where? And she went, well, you, you feel guilt. Well, I feel guilt here in my belly and I feel mm -hmm. happiness in here. And I went, no one told me that. No, like I, I've been operating since childhood, like not knowing that emotions are something you physically feel inside your body. Mm -hmm. And this is a big part of what Vanderkoek covers with the massage therapist. They literally will take a, a, a traumatized patient on a table and they'll rub their chest and they go, okay, I'm rubbing your chest now because the patient's the eyes are closed. They go, can you feel my finger on your chest? And they go, yeah. And then they'll take the finger away and go, do you feel anything on your chest now? And the person will, you know, maybe they'll say, oh, I, I do. And they go, well, is it inside your chest? Where is it in your body? And they go, oh, I think it's here. And if you could name that physical feeling to me, what would that be if it was an emotion? And then the person might say, oh, calm i i feel calm and so you have to relearn how to identify and feel the emotions that are happening physically within you and this was a mind-blowing revelation for me i did not know that you feel emotions physically in your person and so what i realized in hindsight was when i originally went to the hospital with my panic attack first time the 
pain in my chest that I kept thinking was my heart being, you know, under distress was actually sadness. It was just crippling, brutal sadness. Mm-hmm. And knowing I'd never learned that you feel sadness in your chest or you feel anger in your solar plexus or you feel guilt in your stomach. I'd never processed or learned any of that stuff. My childhood had been so brutal that I had never been taught. I, I mean, I was taught you're not allowed to have feelings. You're not allowed to feel anything, you know? So that was a big step. And that's essentially like step two, step three in Vanderkoek's system. And once the person is is then reestablishing connection with emotional physical process, then you might be able to walk them through memories one at a time, building toward the traumatic ones. We go, okay, let's start with a happy memory. You know, when you were that age and that happy thing happened, did you can you remember feeling anything in your body? And then a person, oh yeah, I felt happiness here. So you're starting to teach them how to what they, what we call process and narrative which is the memory starts here and the memory ends here. And you have to be able to remember the whole thing from start to finish. And once you can remember it, start to finish in correct chronological order, then you can compartmentalize it, process it and store it in your memory bank. Right. And so then you build to trauma, but even with that work, um, when you finally get to a point where you can do speech based therapy, uh, there's still lingering neurological damage there that neuroplasticity can take you so far, but you, you might need things that will accelerate the neuroplastic or synaptoplastic process. And in my case, I chose something called neural feedback therapy. And um, unfortunately, I, I went through a few clinics and the majority of the neural feedback clinics in Toronto are fraudulent. Okay. They're just they're just preying upon traumatized people taking huge sums of money and not actually providing any therapy of meaningful worth. But there is one specific clinic. Um, I can't remember the name of it right off the top of my head, but there is one clinic I, I looked for. I can share with you later. Should have had it in notes. I'm sorry. That's okay. But, um, no um, that did offer legitimate therapy. And so that everyone knows if they look up neurofeedback therapy, what it looks like is uh, firstly, you have to be, you have to be past the point of, of physical engagement, of, of engrossing activity like a martial art or yoga. You have to get past the point of reestablishing emotional, physical connection in your body so your brain starts to work effectively again to help combat the brain damage. You have to be past the point where you've engaged in speech therapy and you're able to unpack some of the trauma, at least in a way that's meaningful to process the narrative completely. And then after that, you have to process some bad memories through things like internal family systems therapy. These are things that licensed therapists are qualified to give you. And once you've passed those four or five stages, then you can look at neural feedback. And when you go into neural feedback, if it's legitimate, it should just be the price of the neural feedback therapy is the exact same price as therapy with a professional, whether that's a hundred or $150 per hour is the typical going rate in Toronto. Mm -hmm. There should be no additional cost. There shouldn't be any upfront fee. They shouldn't be fitting you with a cap or a helmet or any of that stuff that, that the fraudulent clinics claim. They'll go in and they basically will put an electrode on one part of your head and they'll run the electrode to the other part of your head where they want the current to pass through. And they're aiming at targeting the region of damage, like the hippocampus, the amygdala loop, or the, the hemisphere connection, or maybe like closer to the brainstem, et cetera. And they run a low frequency current through there and the therapist will sit with you in the office and you'll actually 
like watch i watched netflix while they did this i was mm-hmm. watching like brooklyn 99 but um which is an amazing show by the way but uh they'll basically say okay we're gonna run this through and we're you know it's kind of guesswork everyone's brain is a little different so if you feel an, a massive spike of anxiety you tell us we could back off of that and we kind of fix it so i went for about I want to say six to eight weeks of that before they went, okay, you're responding. Your brain is prepped. And now we're going to take you into like the, the area of your brain where trauma is typically seated and stored. And uh, I experienced an increase of overall anxiety during this process of six to eight weeks. But then they did this, this therapy session where they elicited flashback to a trauma that was deep buried. And in my case, um, it was the first time that I lost consciousness or possibly died when I was five. And I had actually forgotten about that event occurring until they fired up this thing. And, and then I went, oh, yeah, I, don't, I drowned when I was five. Oh, Jesus. I, I didn't remember that at all. My, my dad was a drunk and I fell in this pool at a, in a community area and he was just passed out in the corner. And someone dragged me out of the water and lifeguards resuscitated me with CPR. And uh, I remember falling to the bottom of the pool and looking up and seeing the outline of the trees in the sky from under the water and thinking it was so peaceful before I lost consciousness. And that was the memory that came back. And now I can talk about it because I processed it and I was sobbing, Mm -hmm. you know, and that was the first event where I really was either I had died or I was going to die or lost consciousness. I'm, you know, I was five. I'm not sure, but he helped process that with me. And, And then after that, I stopped needing cannabis to sleep. I can now sleep without cannabis. Um, I have anxiety like other people do. I don't have massive panic attacks. I haven't had flashbacks in years. I I don't have phantom pain anymore. I just have some autistic challenges that I now know are autistic challenges, but I'm, I'm recovered. I'm much, much better now. And most people don't recover from it. And the primary reason most people don't recover from PTSD is because there isn't any damn therapy out there. There's an, and, and there's not a lot of knowledge in it either because the potentiality that we could cure this, which Vanderkoek lays out in his book, it's totally curable with the proper approach. It's not easy. Mm-hmm. It's not simple. It is the hardest thing you'll ever do. It's brutally painful. It's emotionally devastating. It's, it's horrible. You, my, my motivation was I have to get better for my wife and my daughter. I have to get better for my wife and my daughter. But if you don't have the motivation, man, you're not going to do it. It's, it's the hardest thing I've ever done, but it's doable. And if, if that were common knowledge, instead of just handing out prescriptions to freeze the person in place, so to speak, then there's a potentiality that people would seek fiscal remuneration from employers or government for having that condition and wanting therapy covered and that the cost would be staggering. It's just too much money. Yeah. Well, I think what you mentioned before, and I think the biggest takeaway is like, is all about obviously being the awareness about it the manageability about the situation and then obviously creating awareness and then being able to be specific to what those needs are for the particular individual right and yeah the willingness that that individual wants to achieve out of it too and the means because that's the other thing too like it's the means to go through the therapy portions that you went through and you had the ability to too, right? If they don't have yeah. the resources available to them, that's a huge issue. And it obviously that's a huge barrier yeah. for those individuals. And the tragedy of that is intelligence, unfortunately, plays a role. I mm-hmm. mean, there are, there are people out there 
their IQ is 100 points or less, and they just don't have the capacity to understand the process they're going through and undertake that process. And it sucks. Mm -hmm. It's no one's fault. Like some people just will not be able to get over it. It's horror. It is the absolute worst thing I've ever been through. I had to learn to walk again. I've, I've seen horrible things. And it was the worst thing I've ever, hardest thing I've ever done is PTSD recovery. And then the martial arts, when you really start looking into the materials, especially some of the esoteric stuff, you can see that there was a awareness of post-traumatic stress, not in the sense that we might say clinically it's post-traumatic stress, but there's awareness of what they call madness, which I call it, it's madness. And that there were many, many martial arts masters who were like, the madness will descend upon you. The only way to deal with it is these things. These are the things that help them. And those are things like kata or uh, stretching yoga type stuff. Uh, rolling in BJJ is incredibly helpful because it's methodical. It activates parasympathetic nervous system. It takes you out of that fear complex and makes you focus mm -hmm. on the opponent in a positive environment. And when I had it the worst, which was my early years with Marco Costa, I was fully, when, when you and I met, man, I was batshit crazy. I was out of my <laughs> mind. I, I was seeing stuff. I, I remember, dude, I, I would cry from home to the, to, the, to the martial arts club. I'd walk in, and the only time in my life at that time for an eight-year span, the only time I didn't have a feeling of panic, fear, terror, dread, or pain was when I was rolling. Mm. And I'd leave the club, and I'd cry all the way home, but tears home were tears of relief, and then I'd finally experience the closest thing I could to some degree of comfort. Mm. And that was just three, four days a week. I cried all the way to the gym, rolled, cried all the way home and felt better for it. And slowly and incrementally started to improve a little bit and it, it, it sucked, but there's so much discussion of it in the material that gets ignored when martial arts become a sport. And that's the issue is the sport drives popularity. And this is what happened mm -hmm. to Kung Fu. This is what happened to karate. This is what happened to Taekwondo. This is what happened to Judo. This happened to Greco-Roman wrestling. This happened to boxing, pugilism, prize fighting, mm -hmm. tie fighting. There's so much material, uh, you know, Japanese jiu-jitsu, Russian ensemble, where, where they're like breathing. Like there's a reason the first thing any martial artist learns is control your breathing, control your emotion. That's a core element of understanding panic and fear and terror. Mm -hmm. And when you start to suffer from symptoms of PTSD, you know, dude, I, I could be like, when I was five, six years in starting to recover and have all right days and all right weeks. And then I would have bad days and bad weeks. Mm -hmm. I'd be like Tuesday driving, having a great time. I had a wonderful time. Took my wife to dinner or whatever. I literally parked the car, get out, walk, turn the corner. And I saw no joke silhouettes of shadow of a massive street fight that I was in and heard the sounds of the clash and the bottles being broken and, and, and then just had like a horrible day for the rest of the day. Your brain just does it just turns on, turns mm -hmm. off randomly. So those types of situations, the breathing and the fundamentals of like gather yourself. And then the discipline component goes way beyond just this is how you learn the art. When you drive in that, that constant, constant discipline, discipline, when the person does eventually experience the madness like I did, then they're able to cry all the way to the gym, but they get there mm -hmm. and then they do the work and they cry all the way home. But that discipline is what keeps them going. And it keeps you focused. And so when I started to be able to sleep again, 
then I was able to apply my limited energy and time from when I wasn't suffering to finding the answers, trying to read the material, trying to find doctors who could help, et cetera. And that is a major component. So we started teaching discipline in students and there's a lot of masters to talk about. We're not teaching them discipline just so they'll learn how to fight. We're teaching them discipline so that when they eventually find the madness, mm. they know how to deal with it. And there's this constant references and all these materials of the worst fight you're going to face is the fight with yourself. People think that's in regards to competition, fear, anxiety, performance, and competition. And there's a part of that for sure. But it's really, I strongly feel a bigger part of that reference is the war with yourself is a reference to the madness you're going to face if you really do go out there and you really do see a lot of violence like I did. you know. And even at the competitive level, like when Ronda Rousey was thrown in the ring with Holly Holmes, that just shouldn't have happened. No. Holly Holly Holmes was like what, 190 kickboxing bouts or what yeah, was that? Yeah, whatever. It's something ridiculous, like yeah. outnumbering. Oh, and, yeah. they, and, and then her coach tried to convince her that she was a boxer. Oh, it was insane. And even at that point, what was she, like nine fights in the UFC? Yeah, nine, ten fights possibly at that yeah, time. So you, you take anyone with nine, ten fights and you put them in there with somebody who's got 190 fights. Like, yeah. that's insane. So when you saw that kick that dropped her, like there's a reason she she talks about an interview. She lost her fucking mind. She went through depression and yeah. horrible nonsense. And listen, that as much as that's emotionally understandable, I am firmly certain a lot of that was the sheer head trauma caused oh. caused major problems in her brain. Like there's 100%. no escape. You know, when when Gary Goodrich fought Don Fry the third time and he kicked Don Fry the exact same way, mm -hmm. Don Fry actually Gary broke Don Fry's neck with that kick and Don Fry didn't know his neck was broken until like 10 years later when they had to fuse his vertebrae together. Those, we, we get so tough and so disconnected from the physical sensations of our body. Look, look at Kurt Angle. Kurt Angle oh, yeah. was wrestling with a broken neck. That's not supposed to be possible. But if you've got alexithymia and you shut down those receptors and you're not processing pain the same way, mm -hmm. then you can get... Or even in my case, man, I'm, I'm hyposensitive autistic. I, I can take a lot more pain than average people. And I'm disciplined and conditioned to the discomfort of training regularly. You know, so you see, even at the competitive level, there are, there are situations of post-traumatic stress that get kicked in. I think Ronda Rousey suffered PTSD after that match. Oh. And then, and then her welcome back was with Nunez. Oh yeah. It, 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 that's like. It's like you're just asking this poor girl to just get just demolished. And it's like, she, and again, it could have been like, hey, I don't, I want the champ. I don't know the conversations behind the yeah. closed doors, right? But it's like, yeah. man, like take a tune-up fight or something just to get yeah. some, your head back Absolutely. in the game. Now you're Even, going up against a lion like Amanda Nunes at the time, who was just yeah. scorching everybody. And and coming out of Brazil and yeah. a lesbian coming out of Brazil. Do you realize the kind of crap that woman's dealt with her whole life? Like, yeah. come on. She's a tough lady. But even mm. on the men's side, look at like Mark Hunt. He had like, mm. I think at the time he was like nine in a row wins. Yeah. And then they threw him in there with Brock Lesnar. Well, and and, and and Brock was like juiced to the gills and they yeah, weren't he really couldn't testing. Even sign the contract. They said in the in Brock's contract, he's like, I can't sign off that I'm not on steroids. <laughs> and they put him in the ring with the guy. So you those kinds of things are traumatic. Of course they're traumatic. Mm -hmm. But then there's no discussion after the fact. Like now Ronda Rousey's working out of the WWE. Like it's all good in the hood, no problem. Like we don't know what the personal issues are. Look at what happened no. to Kurt Angle, how many yes. years he was in the WWE. And, and he was 
just messed the, up. The abuse of the put oh. on his body and God knows what else, right? Yeah, just brutal. Like there's even guys like look at Ronnie Coleman, the bodybuilder. Yeah. He served he served as a police officer in Texas, right? I believe mm -hmm. it was Texas. For years. That man's broken. That man yeah. is broken. Yeah. And how how else could you get to a point where you're squatting so much weight that you break your own spine? Mm -hmm. If not from trauma of being a police officer and seeing these calls all the time, disconnected from his body, pushing it way past what it's supposed to be, mm -hmm. something has to give eventually. I'm oh, yeah. lucky in a way that it was my mind and not my body that gave out because at least I was able to fix it. It yep. took a lot of effort and time, but you see it all over. And there's a lot of material in martial arts that discuss it. And my, my major grievance with BJJ at this point, and I love BJJ. I'm a black belt. You know me, we trained years ago mm -hmm. together and, and we still see each other of time to time. And I was at Marcos today rolling for open mat. I, I roll four times a week. Like I'm into it. I love it. I won't open a club soon. But the grievance is that there is zero, zero discussion on, on the emotional, psychological capacities that we're supposed to have. Mm -hmm. There's, you know, like, Let's be frank. When I went to the Worlds in Vegas a few years back, every single person at that tournament was wired on steroids. Oh, they're they all on TRT. Just, you went to the World soft. Masters, right? Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, they're soft. all on TRT. Yeah. Now, I, I'm i not even going to enter that conversation. I'm not. That's, that's a whole other right. podcast. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not even, and I'm not even demonizing steroids per se. No, and no, exactly. But, like, but, but just look at the reality of like the IFBB when they had their steroids thing come up, they went, yeah, of course we're using them. Of course we are. Are you kidding me? Look at the size of these people. Mm -hmm. So why wouldn't we in the BJJ community go, okay, these guys are cycling and then do like the IFBB and go, this is the drug division. This is the quote drug free division. We'll test the drug free division. This is what IFBB did. And IFBB yeah. is a commendable organization if only for that reason. So that like when young men come up to me, I'm sure you have these conversations too. And they go, you know, I want to make it to the world. I'm Frank. I'm like, listen, man, you're going to have to train five, six days a week, obsessively, mm -hmm. often twice a day. You can't do that unless you're cycling on steroids, which I am not going to tell you to do. It comes with major damage and risk. I'm just telling you, they all are on it. Yeah. And so you have to set a realistic goal for yourself or else you're going to just be emotionally, psychologically crushed when you hit that wall at the top five, mm -hmm. top 10, and you can't get further. And we're not to like, when we go to clubs, I get why we don't want to talk about politics on the mats. We want to, you know, I get why we don't want to talk about certain sensitive subjects on the mats because we want that space to be open for everybody to get together and do the thing we like to do, which mm -hmm. is roll in. That's great. But I think in the lesson components, there should be more discussion. And I'm not even saying a lot, like five, 10, 15 minutes to start of concepts of like stoicism and stuff, concepts of mental awareness and discipline, discussions of things like alexithmia or the nature of trauma. And, and we, we not only don't have it, there's an active effort to avoid it. And then we're seeing slowly but surely more and more frequently black belts who are getting caught up in, in major controversies. You've got black belts who are sleeping with students. You've got mm -hmm. people doing really shady, nefarious, garbage, nonsense things. And a lot of that's because we're not doing any character shaping. We're not talking about these elements in the mats in a lot of clubs. A lot of clubs are, are going, oh, we're only competing. We're only competing. We're only competing. And then where's the, where's the guidance on the athlete? Where's the direction to, to, to how to take care of mind and body 
yeah. it doesn't take much. It's a five, 10 minute thing. Good black belts talk about it, but they're few and far between, you know? Yeah. You know what? You, you, you bring up a good point too, because like, and literally this is kind of coincident because I was listening to um, Keenan Cornelius. He had a post up on stuff and he's talking about, you know, things that gyms hate and blah, 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 blah. And, and again, I can get behind some of the stuff that he yaps about, but he's very repetitive and it's crap sometimes. Mm-hmm. But um, it was going off on like how black belts should not have like a five minute, again, philosophy lesson at the end of their classes, right? And I mean, and to an extent, I, I agree with that, where it's like, depending on what the subject is, right? Right. Okay. Right. Are we talking about, if it's a subject that you have no qualification of talking about? Yeah, absolutely. Like, yeah, shut course, the yeah. fuck up, like, move on, right? But again, like what we're talking about, when we're talking about emotional response, being able to handle stress in these types of situations, things that are related to the actual responses of BJJ mentally, again, PTSD, these are things that are compared to even exercise, as this exercise coach would talk about, right? Yeah, These are yeah. things that you could talk about, and yeah. they, we don't talk about them, but then other, again, Black also say, oh, well, this is, it has no place for it in our, our dojo. So- yeah, but- we could go about it in a more intelligent way. Like this has happened redundantly in the previous martial arts that came up in popularity and crashed. Mm-hmm. So we, we should be able to look back on that history and see it. Like now we're at a point where it would be, especially after COVID with things like zoom, the platform we're using, mm-hmm. it would not be difficult for an agency like IBJJF, OJA, or any number of government you know, regulatory bodies to just put out there, Hey, we've got this licensed professional in mental health who's willing to do courses via online or other ways for black belts only to, to teach them the ins and outs of, of signs of this or that and provide reference materials for therapists that can be contacted in the area, mm-hmm. just stuff like that, that could really help. And then the black belts would be qualified to talk about it. And it wouldn't be a long conference, five, 10 minutes before everybody gets started. You know, yeah. there's ways we could do it. Oh no, a hundred percent. There's totally ways to do it. And I know other organizations like uh, submit the stigma is another one. I don't know if you've yep. heard of that one. Um, yep. It's another great organization that talks about again, depression and all sorts of PTSD as well as in their program, especially with like females as well and suicidal yeah. thoughts. And um, so again, like you said, like it's, a, it's possible, right? It's about really about the organizations and again, professors wanting to take the effort to do it. I think that's yeah. the biggest thing. Well, and, and the awareness will go a long way. Like, I'm not going to name names or point fingers or anything because I don't want to cause a controversy. But nah, everybody gets pissed I, about anything, anyways. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, I knew a black belt handling a gym who had a war veteran, uh, female war veteran, uh, coming to train with him, and I was talking to him after a, a, a training session i rolled with some of the students and i you know making small talk how you doing it went all oh, pretty good i you know i asked so and so on a date and i was like you the fucking war veteran the girl that you yeah and i went dude like she was two months ago literally surviving bomb fire like bombs were being dropped on her mm-hmm. she was in a war zone are you like why on earth would you even venture to ask this person for a romantic coffee like th- there needs to be some awareness. Yeah. If you have police officers training at your club, I'm not telling everyone how they should behave. If an officer approaches you on their off duty and they want to go out with a coffee, it's a whole different ball game, but there should not be 
a person in a position of authority, like I'm the one giving your promotions, your stripes, your belts, asking a person in a traumatized career profession or situation mm -hmm. to do things that are highly personal in in an in a one-on-one -on -one scenario. Like little things like this could be yeah. taught in these courses that would go a long way, not just to success of the club, bettering everyone involved, but bettering the sport as a whole. You know, every mm -hmm. time we hear about a coach wrapped up in some accusation of sex assault accusation of inappropriate behavior it just hurts bjj completely oh exactly you're 100 right you know and i think regulatory bodies could get ahead of that if they just put a few courses say hey, we have these they're here you can take them and you know they're not even that expensive like they mm -hmm. would be these days. a lot of a lot of mental health professionals would be like what yeah i'd love to work with those people that'd be great <laughs> like yeah. be amazing so so when you look at obviously the book which is three volumes You've kind of wrapped everything together with everything that you've learned, obviously, and things that we've talked about today. What's kind of like the the main message that you kind of want to obviously direct towards our audience with obviously the book, obviously what you want their audience to get out of the book more than anything? Um, the the core of martial arts uh, in every single style of art is typically centered around continued learning and betterment and i try to drive home the point that you can learn things you never thought you could never even possibly consider as a reality if you continue to 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 force yourself to progress you know when you get to even with neuroplasticity we see with neuroplastic and synaptoplastic learning that if you start something like an arm bar when you're a white belt, it is incredibly difficult because you haven't developed the neural pathways and muscular skin sensitivity to really get it tight, niche, mm -hmm. hand on hand, all those fine details. When you are trying it and failing it with high frequency, with a high level of failure of attempts, you're actually getting the most benefit from a neuroplastic neurological perspective. Your brain gets the most growth out of high failure actions. And when ironically, when you get really good, you get that black belt level, my arm bar is super amazing and technical. If you're only doing the thing that you've mastered that you're really good at, you actually see cognitive decline. Mm -hmm. That is something we have now, you know, come to consensus understanding on. And one of the things about BGJ, it's so great is there are so many avenues of mm -hmm. learning that once you've mastered or perceive yourself to have mastered an avenue, you can go in a totally different direction and get to a high rate of failure again in one day. Mm -hmm. And so you see universally that practitioners of BJJ are typically just more cerebral, more cognitive people. They tend to be attracted to more intelligent pursuits on a whole. And that is because of that neuroplastic fascination. So the point I'm driving home in the book is when I started out as a kid, I thought, I was an average Canadian, a neurotypical person, not, you know, nothing remarkable. And fast forward to only just when I had turned 38, I had to sit down with my 68 year old mother and say, Hey mom, your mom was, was black, man. Like you, you descended from slaves out of Virginia. And the reason your family told you, you could never discuss family matters was because they were so afraid and scared of that history that when you were born with uh, with with your looks, your green eyes, your white hair, they were like, oh, she's free of it. And they kind of hid it from you. And 
none of us knew that. And, and as far as autism, I didn't know I was autistic till I was 33. And then after I got diagnosed, my brother, both my sisters, my uncle, my mother, or most of my siblings, kids, my child have all been diagnosed formally because it's a hereditary component. And I didn't learn most of this stuff until I was in my mid late thirties. So if you keep learning, you'd be amazed at stuff you learn about yourself, your family history, the, the pursuits you have that constantly continue to broaden horizon. And every time anybody learns something of value, the whole world gets better every time. Education is always a good thing, always. So the point I'm really driving home is keep on attacking new difficult things. I often say uh, uh, very frequently, challenge is opportunity and failure is the framework of all success. It's the core of the martial arts concepts across many martial arts. It's the core message I try to drive home from the book that you have to doggedly pursue this one life you have to learn as much as is humanly possible to aid yourself and others and benefit everyone and everyone comes up. The rising tide raises all ships, you know? Absolutely. No. And, and where can we find the book? Cause obviously we want to tell our listeners where we can get that. Uh, it's available now on Amazon. You look up Osterius volumes one, two, or three, it's both ebook and paperback. So make sure if you want the paper, click the paperback version. Yeah. <laughs> yeah perfect okay well you know what i think this is like one of the deepest podcasts that we've had the opportunity to do and i do appreciate you going really in depth today this has been a really great conversation it's been awesome i'm definitely looking forward to reading the book so i'm definitely gonna pick Thanks, that man. up um just gonna i'm gonna put that in the link especially under um for the podcast obviously for the youtube so we do appreciate great. that um anything you'd like to say before we sign off or anything like that today or was it shout outs or anything yeah, man. Uh, Team Body of Four has been very good to me over the years. I'm actually wearing Tanuki's uh, Mariana's Club, a recent Sage's there's recent uh, affiliate. And uh, to every single person who's ever rolled in BJJ, I would not be sane. I would not be father. I would not be husband. I would not be healthy if it weren't for these spaces where we can go and wrestle and grapple. So, yes, yeah, sometimes we're beat up. Yes, yeah, sometimes we're sore. But remember, every single person that shows up there, we don't necessarily go going through. And in some cases, you're just literally keeping them alive, man. You know, BJJ is, is uh, core to a lot of people's needs and balances. So my message is thank you to every single person who's ever trained with me for any reason, including you, sir. Thank you, sir. Absolutely. I definitely. Like, any, like, I think you're really hammering a message, too, because, I mean, like, we don't know what everybody's really going through and especially those personal battles. And again, I know I fight, didn't have BJJ in my life. I don't know what I'd be doing. Right. Like, yeah. so it's one of those things where I use that as my escape. I, whenever I have a shitty day, I get on the mats, I roll. And even if I have the shittiest rolls ever, I still a really good end of my day. So yeah, man, absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. Well, thank you so much, Sean. I really do appreciate you jumping on with me. It's been a great conversation. I'm definitely looking forward to reading the book. I'm definitely looking forward to promoting this and uh, we'll talk soon for sure. Okay. Awesome. Thank you so much. Bye, everybody. <laughs>